Have you ever heard someone's testimony of how they were converted and became a Christian and wished that you had a better conversion story? Many of us were born to parents who knew the Lord and raised us in a Bible-believing church family so that either through our parents or the ordinary ministry of the church, we heard and responded to the gospel at such an early age, we can hardly remember a time in our lives when we did not know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And then you go to a retreat or a conference and hear a speaker who tells about their lost condition and their radical conversion, and it's a powerful testimony, and you think, it would be great to have a testimony like that. But then you think about it some more and realize it isn't just a story, this is real life. And when that person shares about how lost they were, that was real. The depth of their darkness was horrific, and they are so grateful to be rescued from that. And suddenly, you are grateful that you never had to know such darkness and have had the unmerited benefit of living in the light for so long. This morning, we come to the powerful conversion account of Saul, who would become the Apostle Paul. So as not to confuse this New Testament Saul with the Old Testament King Saul, our kids know him as Saul Paul, which also reminds us of his dramatic conversion. Saul Paul is so grateful for his deliverance that he is able to say, as you heard from Lyndon Fowler last week, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Yes, people like Saul Paul have a dramatic conversion and a great testimony and they are filled with thankfulness for the deliverance of Jesus but if you were to ask any of them whether they would rather have a great story or to have grown up in the light they would pick the light every time we delight in our rescue whenever it was because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus so that we might know come to know or to be encouraged by the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Before we read the word, let's go before the author in prayer. Our Lord, you speak as a God of revelation. And so it is that we have the great benefit today of having the fullness of your revelation that has been given, it has been preserved, and it has been put down in writing so that we can open the Bible in our apps or to open it and set it in our laps and to have you speak. To truly hear you, we need you to come now and would pray for your spirit to come and to bear witness to the reading and preaching of your word. To that end, we pray for the preacher, knowing that he is not worthy and only by your grace is he able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Saul Paul was introduced to us at the end of Acts chapter 7 when he was giving approval to the murder of Stephen. And then at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, as we see Saul seeking to destroy the church by going from house to house to drag off men and women to prison. Well, the sovereign God redeemed such evil with the scattered church ministering the gospel to a larger group of people as a result. And here in Acts 9, we read about God's redemption. Of Saul himself. Listen to God's perfect word. Meanwhile, 
Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea 
and sent him off to Tarsus. And then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers living in the fear of the Lord. The first word of our passage, meanwhile, tells us that the events here in chapter 9 were happening at the same time as the events of chapter 8 and connect us back to the introduction of Saul in Acts 7. His approval of the murder of Stephen continues at the beginning here as he continues to breathe out murderous threats. Make no mistake, Saul was planning to stop at nothing to stop the spread of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus. And there are still today people who will stop at nothing to stop the spread of the gospel. Saul had heard that there was a movement happening in Damascus, which was a largely Gentile city in Syria, about 150 miles north of Jerusalem, around a five-day journey. Damascus was a commercial center where caravans converged from all directions. And Saul knew that if Christianity were to flourish there, it could go into all the world. And so Saul went to the high priest to get letters for the synagogues, essentially warrants for the arrest of any Jews who were found to have become followers of Jesus, or as we read in verse 2, any who belonged to the way. Jesus said of himself, I am the way truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so those who belonged to the way were those who were followers of Jesus as the way and who lived in a way that reflected that they followed the way. There's a sweet sense of God's sovereignty in the fact that while Saul is traveling north to Damascus, God has Philip traveling south on the road to Gaza for the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. So Saul is traveling north to do everything he can to stop the spread of the gospel that direction. Meanwhile, it is now being spread in the south. You can't stop God. (laughs) And that takes us to the moment when everything changes. Verse three, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, why do you persecute me? If it sounds dramatic, that's because it is. But notice what's dramatic. A light and a voice from heaven. A divine light and a divine voice because it is the Lord himself. Now, how has that voice always sounded in your mind when you read this passage? Was it gentle and soothing? Oh, my poor soul. My poor, poor soul misunderstood. Why do you persecute me as such a sad result of your misunderstanding? Come here, my gentle Saul. Or is it mean and rude? Saul, you piece of garbage. Why do you persecute me, you worthless waste of life? Or do you hear the holy convicting sound of the Lord, rightly condemning, and yet with a predetermined condescending grace, one who has come in order to convert. Notice that though Saul is out persecuting Christians, our Lord identifying with his people and reminding us that all sin is ultimately against him says, why do you persecute me? Saul knowing full well that he is 
meeting with the divine, falling to the ground. He's confused and thinks he's doing God's will. And so he asks, who are you, Lord? And the reply is stunning. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul Paul meets Jesus. Indeed, this is the moment when everything changes. Saul becomes Paul, realizing that Jesus is resurrected, as the disciples claimed, because the resurrected Jesus is talking to him right now. This is called a Christophany, a temporary appearance of Christ, sometimes called also a theophany, a temporary appearance of God. It is officially a post-incarnate Christophany, that is an appearance of Christ after his resurrection, after his earthly life in the flesh. The Old Testament has several events of a pre-incarnate Christophany, an appearance of Christ before he was born into the world. Genesis 12, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. And in Genesis 17, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Oftentimes we read that an angel of the Lord appeared to someone, but of course the word angel also means messenger. And then there are those mysterious figures that appear from time to time, like the man who wrestled with Jacob, who was then renamed Israel because he had struggled with God. There are over 200 passages in the Old Testament that speak of angels and messengers, and as many as one-third of them have been labeled Christophanies. Earlier in the service, we read the passage from Daniel 10. And in Daniel 10, Daniel sees a man dressed in linen with a face like lightning and a voice like the sound of a multitude. And it's further said, the men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. And so it is in our passage in verse 7, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. So here we have Saul blinded by the light, as the saying goes. And yet there are always skeptics, some who think that Paul is an imposter and this whole thing is staged. But as we think about it rationally, we realize that Paul cannot be an imposter in part because we remember who is giving this account. It's Luke. Luke is the writer of Acts. Luke was not one of the 12 disciples. He is an historian hired by Theophilus to uncover the facts. And so he is the one that travels with Paul. The accounts that he gets are from Paul himself. He is friends with Paul. And so if Paul is an imposter, then he has either fooled Luke or Luke is in on it, in on it too neither of which is possible logically because it doesn't serve either one of them. Remember that Paul had a bright future doing exactly what he had already been doing. And Luke was being paid for and tasked with fact-finding. People invent stories in order to impress people and get ahead. Invented stories would have had the opposite effect for Paul and for Luke. Neither then is it possible that they were fanatics in some state of ecstasy. They were both highly educated, rational people. If anything, they sought to refute fantastic stories and stick to rational facts. No, Saul Paul was converted by the truth. And today, people are still converted by the truth. And yet there are many 
who seek to win converts by emotional manipulation, a form of deception, either by making a person feel guilty or by making a person feel ecstatic. True conversion is not based on a feeling, but based on the truth of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Worship and the means of grace ministry of the gospel must also not be emotionally manipulative. Worshipainment, putting on a show and calling it worship. Entertainment fills seats, but the gospel fills souls. Entertainment fills seats, but the gospel fills souls. Now this vision to Saul is not the only one happening. The Lord also calls out to a disciple named Ananias, who is assured by the Lord that this is not a trick and that Saul has been truly converted by the Lord in order to be the Lord's chosen instrument. And consider for a moment the faith of Ananias in the Lord. This isn't a blind faith. It's a faith in the Lord, a faith that the Lord speaks the truth. The faith of Ananias takes him to the house where Saul, the known persecutor, is staying, and even enough to call him Brother Saul as soon as he sees him. It begs the question, would you go to that house? It's really a question about our faith in the Lord. Do we believe that God can really change a person that we have prayed for? or a person that we said we pray for, but we really don't because we've written them off. Last year, I had the opportunity to read the book by Rosaria Butterfield, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. If you don't know about Rosaria Butterfield, you would be greatly encouraged to read of this liberal lesbian English professor who came to know Christ in April of 1999. She has become an outstanding author and speaker uh, within Christian circles. In fact, some have become so well-known after their conversion, we forget who they were before their conversion. C.S. Lewis called himself the most reluctant convert in all of England. And indeed, the days before he came to Christ proved that to be the case. Marvin Alasky, who is the editor now of World Magazine, was once a Marxist. Who are you praying for? or should be praying for, rather than writing them off as unable to be changed. Not just the lost, but the most hated, despicable enemies of Christ. Let us continue to pray for the souls of our world and be ready to minister to them when the Lord calls. And to know that even we are those who are pursued by the Lord. I didn't do it. That even ourselves, we are pursued by the Lord and none of us is outside of the Lord's grip. So see the gospel in this entire account. It is the Lord who comes to meet Saul, not the other way around. The Lord doesn't wait for us to get it all together before he hesitatingly comes to us. The Lord boldly pursues us to overwhelm us with his powerful, irresistible grace. This powerful grace is ministered to Paul at the hands of Ananias who comes at the Lord's prompting, calls him brother, prays for him, and, and Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. The scales fall from his eyes. It is this same powerful grace that moves us 
forward in our Christian lives. In the recent Banner of Truth Conference, Sinclair Ferguson said this, if I am to make any progress in sanctification, the place where I must always begin is the gospel of the mercy of God to me in Christ Jesus. It always begins with God's grace reaching to us. So what's next for Saul Paul after his dramatic meeting with Jesus? Now in verse 5, Saul had asked, who are you, Lord? The account of his conversion that we're going to read later in Acts 22 tells us that Paul at that time had also asked, what shall I do, Lord? And it's a good reminder that we should continually ask both of those questions. To ask only, who are you, is to get stuck in endless doctrinal debates with little action. To ask only, what shall I do, is to get stuck in mere activism with no foundation. The account here in Acts 9 tells us about the things that he will then do because of what was first done for him. And it would seem that these things happen very quickly one after the other. Verse 19, we are told that Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And then verse 23, after many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. And so it seems to us like that's maybe a week or two. However, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he tells us that those days add up to three years. Between verses 19 and 25, we are talking about three years. According to verse 20, We're told that at once Paul began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. But the other verses let us know that he also had preparation and learning to do with the disciples. And so for three years, Paul stayed in and around Damascus sharing and preparing. When we are converted, there is immediate sharing that we are called to do. But there's also preparation and learning that needs to take place. We are always growing as disciples. I have a friend who says, I think when a person becomes a Christian, they should get locked up for a year because they suddenly think they know everything and can get a bit carried away. The same thing should probably be said of people when they come to embrace the Reformed faith, the doctrine of election and the full sovereignty of God. I recall my own arrogance in turning every conversation into a debate about predestination and doctrinal superiority. Now, Paul is preaching about two things at the beginning. First, that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, it's not to be confused with the modern liberal theology that says we are all, as made in the image of God, that we are all sons and daughters of God. Paul would not have been persecuted for simply saying that we are all children of God. Still today, the world wants that to be the message. It is the message of secular humanism, that we are all equally children of whatever divine being you choose to believe in or not. Secular humanism says that what matters is our humanity, not some being's divinity. Our proclamation, which was Paul's proclamation, is that Jesus is the son of God. It's a proclamation that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is God who came in the flesh and who died in our place and is resurrected and has power over sin and death. And then verse 22, Paul proves convincingly that Jesus is the Christ. And so to the largely Gentile group of people living in Damascus, the uh, radical doctrine was the fact that 
Jesus was divine, the Son of God. To the Jews living in Damascus, the radical truth was that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one promised in the Old Testament. Saul knew the Old Testament. He was well-educated in the Jewish religion. And here he has come to understand that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. And he is very effective in connecting the dots of the Old and what will become the New Testament, that Jesus is that promised Messiah. Now certainly, Paul immediately also suffers persecution at the hands of those who once were his colleagues, narrowly escaping with the help of others, lowering him down a wall in a basket. John Stott notes the strange irony. He says, the story of Saul's conversion in Acts 9 begins with him leaving Jerusalem with an official mandate from the high priest to arrest fugitive Christians and ends with him leaving Jerusalem as a fugitive Christian himself. Paul also suffers persecution of not being trusted, the suspicion from other Christians. Verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. And yet there is one who is not afraid of Saul Paul, but fears the Lord more, Barnabas, who seeks him out with gospel grace. Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Eventually, Barnabas will be the one that travels with Paul and is involved in Paul's missionary journeys. When someone first comes to Christ, they need advocates, fellow Christians who will call them brother and sister and be there for them. When someone falls but repents, they need advocates to surround and encourage them. Who are you praying for? Who should you be praying for? Who are you tempted to give up on? Just because nothing seems to be happening does not mean nothing is happening. Just because nothing seems to be happening does not mean nothing is happening. You cannot stop God. Madeline Murray O'Hare was the well-known atheist who successfully got prayer and Bible reading out of the public school. Her son, who was raised with this particularly angry form of atheism, came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord and wrote a book confessing the errors of his early days. Many of you of uh, older generation know of the political advisor to President Nixon who once said that he would walk over the body of his grandmother if it would mean getting his boss reelected, who went to prison as part of the Watergate scandal and in prison came to confess Christ as Savior and Lord. His name, of course, is Chuck Colson, the leading author and teacher of Jesus Christ. In the 18th century, there were two young men in England, Lord Littleton and Gilbert West. They were lawyers who thought they had good reasons for rejecting Christianity. One day they were talking together and thought that they had it all together. And so they said to one another, you know, Christianity stands upon a very unstable foundation. There are only two things that actually support it. The alleged resurrection of Jesus Christ and the alleged conversion of Saul of Tarsus. 
If we can disprove these stories, which should be rather easy to do, Christianity will collapse like a house of cards. And so Gilbert West decided to write a book disproving the alleged resurrection of Jesus, and Lord Littleton decided to write a book disproving Paul's conversion. Well, sometime later, they met together again, and the one said to the other, I'm afraid I have a confession to make. I've been looking into the evidence for the story, and I've begun to think that maybe there's something to it after all. And the other said, you know, the same thing has happened to me. And in fact, in the end, after they had done their investigation and written their books, they came out on exactly the opposite side of where they had started. Gilbert West wrote the book, The Resurrection of Jesus Christ, arguing for the fact of its history. And Lord Littleton wrote The Conversion of St. Paul. In fact, you can still find copies of these books. In one edition, inside the cover, it says this, Blame not until thou hast examined the truth. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, which is why the conversion of Paul is true, which is why your conversion is true, which is why you have a great testimony of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And may that truth set you free. Amen.